Welcome to episode 10 of A Holy Mess with His Holy Mess, Father Paul Catholic Podcast. Welcome back, Holy Messes. I hope you enjoyed the previous conversations that we had. It was a great conversation that I had with Chris Stefanik last week on living joy and speaking truth in a very woke world. If you haven't listened to that one yet, do me a favor. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think. Share it if you like it. But I'm very excited uh, for this episode. We're getting closer to Christmas. As we record this, uh, we are in, literally, it is the third Sunday of Advent right now called Gaudaute Sunday. It sounds like I'm saying gout, uh, like something you would have in your foot. But no, it is a Latin word for rejoice, Gaudaute Sunday. Rejoice Sunday because the Lord Jesus is near. And guess what? It would be appropriate on this day, even though it is not Christmas yet, to talk about Christmas. And I'm here with somebody who is not only a dear friend of mine, but who I truly believe loves Christmas almost more than anyone that I have ever met. He's a dear friend. He's my former pastor. He's one of the best men and the best priests that I've ever met in my entire life. Father John Gabriel, welcome to A Holy Mess with His Holy Mess, Father Paul. Thanks for being on here. Well, hello, your holy mess. It's nice to see you. Welcome, good Father Paul. Great to be with you. Thank you for asking me to take part in this, uh, this wonderful endeavor of yours, this great podcast that you've uh, been doing. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. This is, uh, this is awesome because here we are. We're uh, at your rectory and we're in your rooms uh, here where I lived for six years. I was your parochial vicar. You were my pastor for five of those years. And one of the bonds that we shared amongst many was um, our love for Christmas. And in particular, something that you really kind of reintroduced me to, a Christmas carol. I always obviously knew of a Christmas carol, even when I was a little kid and Tiny Tim and Ebenezer Scrooge and all that. but. It wasn't until I started uh, living with Father John in the rectory here where every Christmas we watched a couple different versions of A Christmas Carol. And it had such an impact on me that it started to impact the way that I preached uh, about Christmas, which I'm trying to find some of those homilies and I can't right now. Uh, but I asked Father John if he would be willing to do an episode about this. And he said yes. And so here we are. We just watched the Alistair Sim version of A Christmas Carol, and now we're going to talk about it. So thanks again. Well, I'm glad to talk about it. You know, it's a good favorite topic of mine. You and I have had a lot of conversations about it. But before we begin talking about that stuff, I want to say that I've been listening to your podcast. I think you have a great talent for it. I think you're doing a great job. But as you already know, because we've been together for a good number of hours already today, I'm a nervous wreck to do this because I'm not really a podcast person. So hopefully it's going to turn out okay. I know that you've had uh, some heavy hitter Catholics on here. You've had Christopher West and you've had an exorcist uh, doing two episodes and you've had Chris Stefanik and you have Justin Fatika. And I'm just like this schlepper priest who's a pastor of this parish in Ramsey, New Jersey. No one's ever heard of me. And in the midst of all of these great Catholics that you have, 
I sort of feel like, oh man, I hope this episode doesn't really stink. But anyway, I, I'm happy to talk about it with you. And I really do have a claim to fame here in terms of his Holy Mess podcast, because of all of the priests in the whole world, I have lived longer with you than any other priest. We lived together for five years. That's very true. I've lived longer with you than any of your formators, than any of your friends. We live together in this rectory. And so I certainly can talk about your holy messness. And uh, so if anyone, I won't do that here on this podcast, but no, if any, please, of your, any of your listeners want to call me privately, I can fill them in on no, some No, you stories. totally can. More than, I, I mean, I was, we were gonna, I was gonna do like a whole other episode of that, but we should talk some about that. I was thinking of at my 10-year anniversary, you got up and you gave a speech and it was very funny because you, you basically let everybody know what it was like living with me. And of course, there were some very good things, but you definitely did, and rightly so, many jokes because, I mean, truly, I, th- this is not just a, a scheme or an act here. This is not a character of me being his holy mess. I really, truly am, and no one knows that better than Father John. Well, it was certainly an interesting experience. I learned a lot living with uh, Father Paul Hulis, but uh, I also saw the goodness in you and your great vocation. As uh, as you know, I would, would t- played a small part in as one of your formation group leaders when you were in the college seminary, and I did that for 16 years, helped out with the uh, college sem with formation, and uh, so I've always believed in your your vocation. I know that uh, you have a lot of great gifts, a lot of great things to. Uh, give the church a lot of wonderful ways that the Lord works through you. Uh, I also know that if I heard your alarm going off one more day, I think I would pull any of the hair left out of my head that I still have. <laughs> I don't have much left on my head. Yeah, you don't have any hair on right, your I don't head. have any hair on my head. That's probably right. because you live with me. Right, exactly. Yeah. And the alarm would go off for two, three, four hours and all day. The whole rectory would be shaking and you would not be getting up. So, yeah, uh, But I don't miss that. That's but, uh, very I do true. miss you and... Uh, Love you, uh, your great friend, and thank you for asking me to be part of your podcast. The thing is, <laughs> you joked about being a, a little schlep or whatever. You are a very holy man. You are a very spiritual man. You're a great priest, and I think people will truly benefit from listening to that. And you know what? As a couple of these famous celebrities said to me already, they're, they're like, even if it's just one person, it helps. And somebody said, you know what? Most of the world doesn't even know who we are. But people are interested in talking about good topics, good conversations. And, and Chris Stefanik, who, you know, has hundreds of thousands of followers, he said to me, he said, my job is to get them to you, meaning not Paul Hulis, but get them to church, get them to the sacraments, you know, so that's, that's all they're doing anyway, so. Well, if there's a lot of people that listen to this, probably some of it will be because I put it in my bulletin and announced it at Mass. <laughs> So our parishioners who probably want to hear it because they love you <laughs> will want to uh, will want to listen. So please, God, that will happen. And you're right. You're right. It's always about uh, it's not about um, numbers or our popularity. It's about Christ and it's about him using the little that we have imperfectly, the things that we do to touch people's hearts. I always think of, you know, St. Therese when she was uh, head of the novices in the, the Carmel of Lisieux. She said that God puts the seeds in her hand and she just scatters them. And then she doesn't pay attention to what happened. She just puts it out there and the Lord makes the growth or not. It's up to him. So I have to say something. I was very inspired. Father John uh, wrote a book a couple of years ago. It's published. It's called To the Tin Man, Letters from a Parish Priest by Father John D. Gabriel. Where can people find this book? 
Uh, they can get it on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. I know I've had it for about two years now, and I should have read it a very, very, very long time ago. But people, this is absolutely amazing. This is where he, well, why don't you explain it? What is the, 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 the general thesis or, uh, of the book? Well, when I was in the college seminary myself a number of years, well, God, a long time ago in the late 70s, at the time that I lived there, there was a library and I you had to pass through the library to go into the chapel. And I, one day I just was looking through the books and I saw a book called Illustrissimi. It's actually a book, a collection of letters written by Albino Luciani, who wound up being Pope John Paul I. Now I believe he's blessed, uh, Pope John Paul I, right? Uh, And uh, this was when he was uh, the Cardinal Patriarch of Venice. He used to write letters to people from history and literature, fiction, and uh, he would write it as weekly or monthly in their diocesan paper. They collected them all into a book, and I I just love it. It's one of my favorite books uh, that, again, I've known since the late 70s, early 80s. So that always was something that stuck in my mind. I really liked that way of writing. So. This book, my book, is a collection of letters, about 30 letters. Each chapter is a letter to a person of history, uh, fiction or literature, uh, about uh, some aspect of Catholic life. Uh, and, um, and I really have written them just for my own self. I, it's a way that I pray uh, and through, sort of threw them in my sock drawer and over the years uh, collected uh, enough to make a little bit of a book. So uh, and I really just, again, put it out there in the hopes that it's just going to be helpful to uh, to someone. Because it's really beautiful. And the way that you write is really beautiful. And we'll get into the specifics with the Christmas characters. Because you write uh, a letter in here to Fezziwig from the Christmas Carol to Santa Claus, which is out of this world. It really is absolutely beautiful. I hope that every Catholic Christian reads that chapter. Um, and then also to Frosty the Snowman, which is really beautiful. You told me that the, uh, one of the favorite chapters or the characters that you wrote in this book was the Fezziwig from A Christmas Carol. Why is that? Why is that one of the best ones you did? Well, because I, I like the topic. I love the character. For those of you who don't know uh, Mr. Fezziwig in the story of A Christmas Carol, uh, Mr. Fezziwig is Ebenezer Scrooge's boss when he's a young, just starting out in his own career. And uh, what I love about Fezziwig is uh, he's just a person of joy. and Every year on Christmas Eve, uh, he stops work. Every, they take all the tables, all the thing, the desks. They move everything to the side, and they have a big party. And they just enjoy it. And, of course, the ghost of Christmas past brings uh, Scrooge back to that to remember his old boss. Later on in the story, though, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge sort of screws Fezziwig, and they take the business from him and with Jacob Marley, and they're sort of pretty mean to him. But um, and he just uh, suffers it, right? But when they go back to the to to what he remembers uh, from his past, Fezziwig is just a person who loves celebration, loves to bring people together, uh, loves to just make something wonderful happen for people. And that don't don't you just love people like that in your life? Like I said to you, Paul, uh, that there's a was a friend of mine, a guy I've been friends with uh, since we're in high school, that became a priest who has since passed away, but that was him. He was in my mind when I wrote this chapter, but because he was someone who knew how to bring people together, different people from different parts of his life would come together to celebrate. And, and people like that uh, are just so wonderful, who, who introduce you to new people and new experiences, just uh, want to, to bring people together. And, and we just need more people like that 
in the world. So that's why I really love the chapter on Mr. Fezziwig, um, because, you know, we need more people like him. Yeah, you know, and to put that in the proper context, what is it about A Christmas Carol itself? Obviously, it's a, a book written by Charles Dickens, right? It's not just a movie. Um, but what is it about A Christmas Carol that you love so much? Well, you know, it's just one of those stories that, uh, that just really has captured my imagination. I think it's so beautifully written. Uh, one of the things that you and I go back and forth about at Christmas time every year, there's so many different versions of the story, and it gets confusing because a lot of them change the story. You know, they put different, uh, they emphasize different things, they add different things, they change names. The best thing is to go back to the book itself, to the novella, right? Written in, uh, I guess it's 1843 by Charles Dickens. Uh, and really read the original story. It is this beautiful story of redemption. Uh, it's a beautiful, and, and, and I think it's just really um, a story that is immersed in Catholicism, in, in Christian faith, even though that may not be so explicit in it, although there's lots of scriptural references in it. We're told that Dickens uh, was a person of faith, even though, of course, in, in uh, London, so it would have been the, the Church of England, but, um, but, but sort of was a little bit suspicious of organized religion. But I love the story because it shows, uh, it's just a great story of hope and, and centered in the beauty of Christmas. Christmas is a time when we really just, we think of people think about things they don't think about all year, right? People who don't come to mass, come to mass. People who don't give a lot of consideration about faith, uh, you know, all of a sudden start to, even, even if it's just for a few minutes or and, and just the beauty, right? I mean, the beauty of Christmas, the beauty of the scriptures, the beauty of the way that we decorate. I mean, you know, people love Christmas so much that it, 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 earlier and earlier people are decorating and people are, things are, are in the stores. And, uh, and, and, you know, certainly, you know, as, as Catholics, we sort of lament that in the sense that Advent is such a beautiful season and Advent gets swallowed up by Christmas sometimes, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. But, um, and and we, we lose Advent and that's a shame too. But Advent is so beautiful as well, right? The colors, the, the smells, the scents, the, the, just the, the sounds, the music, the beauty of this time of year. So um, I think that, you know, with A Christmas Carol, you know, Dickens wanted to make some kind of a commentary on his time. And, and, you know, poverty and the fact that people had forgotten about Christmas and they weren't celebrating it as they had in the past in England uh, at the time that he was writing. Uh, and he wanted to also show the plight of like poor children and, and poor people. But he decided instead of writing a political treatise on it or, you know, something really uh, in your face, he instead went the route of this story that is just so enchanting and has so many great things that we can draw out of it um, that it, I've just, I've just really have loved it. So the best thing is to just go back and read the novella first. Um, you even can just put it on YouTube. It's an audio book and you just, sometimes I go to bed at night and I just, you know, YouTube is reading it to me. What does novella mean? I think it's just a little novel. Oh, in like Italian? Like a short that, novel. Yeah, I guess something like that. You're, you're Italian, so you use these words. Yeah, uh, that's not that. a word that my grandmother ever said too much. Okay. <laughs> she said a lot of the bad words that I really uh, can't. Got it. Uh, that's, that's why you know best in Italian. Well, we're talking about the origins of a, of a Christmas card, Charles Dickens, and uh, why he wrote it and how he wrote it. And it's interesting because you and I actually, a couple of years ago, in the movie theater, saw a movie made about that exact experience. I believe it's called The Man Who Invented Christmas, right? Right, yes. And yeah. that movie shows the story 
of how and why he wrote, I mean, how he wrote A Christmas Carol in real time, which was really amazing and beautiful. And it was interesting to go with you because I had been watching it for a couple of years at that point, all the different versions that uh, we're doing. And then to go in to see that, and it really kind of added an extra layer, like, oh, okay, this is like, because I love behind the scenes stuff. Like, I, I've always been a guy, you know, the VH1 behind the music or, you know, e-entertainment biography stories about some celebrity or some movie, the behind the scenes of why somebody did something, how they did it. Um, so that, that's a really good uh, resource if you guys want to go watch uh, a man, The Man Who Invented Christmas about Charles Dickens actually writing uh, A Christmas Carol. Um, do you happen to remember exactly where he came up with the character Scrooge or what was the inspiration for that? Uh, well, I guess, you know, there's some different theories about how that happened. In the movie you're talking about, um, uh, uh, The Man Who Invented Christmas, even the name, you may remember uh, Scrooge in that movie, or, or Charles Dickens is sitting at a table yeah. and there's a waiter. And I think that was his name was some some version Ebenezer, of that. maybe. Right, something like that. Yeah, yeah so he kind of pulls the name from, you know, from listening, from me actually meeting someone. There are two uh, actual people who lived uh, around the time of Dickens that Dickens was aware of that had sort of elements of the Scrooge personality to them. And I don't remember their names offhand, but, um, but so they were, there were real people in his life that he was aware of uh, that he based this character on. Yeah, it's really powerful. I mean, and I, I think that like in some way, shape or form, and not just with Scrooge, with, but with all the other characters uh, that I think it's that we can relate to almost, I, I think there's somebody to relate to in any character in the movie, whether it be Mr. Scrooge, whether it be Bob Cratchit. Um, what, did I just say his name right? You did. Okay. <laughs> Bob Cratchit. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, um, and, uh, you know, his business, you know, Mr. Fezziwig. It, it's really beautiful to see the different characters, but I think that, there's a little bit of Scrooge in all of us. And obviously I didn't, you know, just come up with that. That's, been, like, that's probably like the whole point of the whole thing or whatever. But it's, it's really a beautiful story of redemption and of hope because it seems like, and other people treat him as if he's beyond hope, you know? And he, even he himself, at least in this version that we were just watching, the Alistair Sims version, which is really one of my favorite, favorite versions of the movie, where even he's like, I'm too old. I'm, you know, go help somebody that's younger. And it really kind of goes to show, I don't know if this is, was Dickens, but obviously you and I are going to kind of baptize this or Christianize this, right? Because our purpose is evangelization here. How can we take from the world, even the secular, what is true, good, and beautiful, and add light to it, add Christ to it? But you know what? There, there, there's hope available to everybody. And, and no matter how old you are, and no matter how, like, how dark your sins were either, you know, sometimes people might think that they are beyond redemption because they have done that unforgivable sin. There were some things that happened in this movie with Ebenezer Scrooge where, like, his greed was just paramount. Like, just, you know, and you would think, like, yeah, no, that's, that's not forgivable. But, but no, like, there's still hope, you know? So one of the things that I would want to say to any Catholic Christian out there listening or anybody at all, Christian or not, like, there's always hope. It doesn't matter what you did. And what, what I remember learning, Father John, in the seminary is it's a quote by some saint. I don't remember who. But the bigger the sin, the bigger the mercy. Uh, the greater the sinner, the greater the, uh, the, the saint the person could be. Um, have you have any experience with that at all? Or can you speak to that? Well, yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, I, I, that's really what we're about, right? We're about redemption. We're about hope. We're about the possibility of, of starting again, right? 
I mean, the last couple of Sundays in uh, the Gospels, John the Baptist, he's calling people to repentance, to conversion. Uh, and that is really what we're all about. And, you know, it's funny, uh, kind of a funny thing that when you think of all the people that we hear about in the Advent Christmas story, Mary and Joseph and angels and shepherds and wise men, they all have ornaments on our trees and they all have cr- on the covers of Christmas cards, except for John the Baptist. He's a major Advent figure, right? But we never hear, I- I've never seen an ornament of John the Baptist. I've never seen John the Baptist on the cover of a Christmas card. Because I think that he's the person in the, in the Advent Christmas story that we're most uncomfortable with. And yet perhaps he's the one at times that we need the most. Because he's the one that tells us, yes, there is redemption, there is hope. But first you have to be honest. First you have to look at yourself and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need to change. Lord, I need to change my mind, to change my heart, right? That, that wonderful Greek word metanoia, right? Um, and so, so we, we really, uh, we want to sometimes just stay on the surface of Christmas. Yeah, great. It's a party. It's great food. It's Santa Claus. It's presents. It's trees. But yet, you know, there's something about Christmas that, that an Advent that can make us really have to look at ourselves. That's not easy. And you can see even like vestiges in it in what we might call secular Christmas, right? Like um, he's, um, he's making a list, he's checking it twice, he's going to find out who's naughty and nice. You know, n- not that we love everything that, that the world has done to poor old St. Nicholas, right? Uh, I often think, you know, St. Nicholas is like, you know, St. Valentine and, and, you know, in some ways St. Patrick, you know, saints that the secular world has sort of taken over and, and what they, the reason they became saints because they loved Christ but the secular world has turned them into something else. I don't think a saint can grieve in heaven, but I think St. Nicholas and maybe St. Valentine and maybe St. Patrick might look at what the world has done to them and taken them away from Christ and put layers of, of, of other things on them, you know, with, with St. Nicholas, you know, whether it's flying reindeer and all these kinds of things, right, the North Pole and all, when really what St. Nicholas cared about most was Christ, right? Uh, and, and that's really the message of his life. We have to, we have to take those saints back, right? But, um, but you know, so it really is about, about redemption. But, but first, we have to be willing to say, Lord, I need to be redeemed. I'm not just here for the party. I'm not just here for the great food. Not just here for the nice music and the pretty, you know, Christmas trees and the nice lights. Lord, I'm going to... Uh, approach Advent and Christmas this year as a time to really allow your love to transform me. And to begin that, I need to hear John the Baptist who says, you know, look at your life, you know, change what needs to be changed. You know, what's so beautiful about that to tie it into a Christmas carol is I'm almost seeing as John the Baptist, right? Preparing the way, this character that people are kind of a little scared of and I'm almost, you know, thinking about these ghosts that are sent to prepare the way for redemption, right? Whether it be the ghost of Christmas. Well, it's a ghost, whether it's the past, the present, the future, right? Kind of scary. And they're, it's, it, they're, they're, they're warning. Well, Jacob Marley really is the one that showed up, right? He's almost kind of preparing a way for these, you know, well, for, well, let's call them angels. In some way, shape, or form, God will do anything and everything he can to make sure that we, to give us the opportunity to accept him, to change our lives, to have redemption, you know? 
So I think that that's a beautiful thing because Scrooge, he wasn't always a bad guy. And that's like the beautiful, shocking thing. And it's even sad when we watch the movie, as I just said to you a little bit earlier, when you go back and you see that, like, he was a really good kid. And then he was a really good young man. And he had love in his life. He loved his uh, sister. Was it, is it um, Faye? Fan. Fan. His sister Fan, which shows how many times I watched the movie. Um, his sister Fan. Then he had uh, Fezziwig, his boss, who he, who he loved and admired. And then it was um, his uh, fiance. Uh, Belle. Belle, exactly what I was going to say. So, <laughs> but in this one, it was April, In this one, wasn't they it? call her Alice or something. Alice, exactly. The calls yeah, Belle. yeah, there yeah. you go. So, you know, and that's a good thing too, is that like the sinner, somebody that you might think that is so far away from God. Well, you know what? And maybe they did horrendous things. They weren't always that way. They were born, they were, they were a little baby. They were a little kid. You know, they, 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 I'm assuming at some point in their life, they had some type of happiness, some type of love, and something happened. Like Scrooge, something happened. You know, we see that the death of his sister, Faye, really affected him. So fan. that could have... Fan. Right. That could have... <laughs> okay, Faye is fine. Paul All right, Faye. Faye. I, I don't know why I want to keep calling her Faye. But that, that, that really hardened his heart. So, you know, there might have been things in, in your past, there could have been things in my past, or any sinner's past that really, you know, kind of change somebody to maybe be a little more stiff, a little colder, a little darker. Uh, this makes me think of, um, I was talking about John Lennon the other day. I'm going through this Beatles phase. And i fascinated with John Lennon. And people might be quick to say, well, but why? You know, he was like so anti-religion. He was anti-God. He even wrote the song Imagine where it says, imagine no heaven, no, you know, above us only sky and stuff like that. But I wanted to find out, like, why did he become the way he became? And I'm not trying to make excuses for him, but I just wanted to find out facts about his life. And one of the things that happened with John Lennon, who's almost kind of like, I mean, in terms of, like, the way that he looked, you could think he almost looked like John the Baptist. I'm not saying he acted like him, but, you know, that long hair, the beard, all that type of stuff. So, um, but, like, when he was a little kid, you know, John Lennon, he wasn't even raised by his parents. Some people say his father abandoned him. Some say that his father didn't abandon him, that it's another story. But his mother surely gave him up to the, his aunt. And then, so he grew up without his mom and his dad. And then when his mother was back in his life, she got hit by a car when he was a teenager and killed. So he doesn't have his mom and his dad for the majority of his life. That could really harden somebody. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to say that this is the reason for whatever, but you know, we just hear a certain song, song and just judge somebody by, you know, a comment or by some lyric, but we don't know their past. We don't know their history. And that's the beautiful thing that I like about A Christmas Carol because you really get to see, you know, that Scrooge was a good man at some point. And somewhere in there, he, there is still a good man. Well, he's a wounded person. He's a wounded person who, uh, and, and you get glimpses of it in, in the novella, you get glimpses of it in some of the different versions of the story show us a little bit of it, but we, we have uh, this idea that uh, his mother died when he was born, right? And that's why his father always had this, uh, had like a struggle with him, a difficulty with him. And it seems didn't even really have any much regard for him, right? Uh, and um, we know that Charles Dickens himself, his own father, uh, he didn't know his father very well. His father went into a debtor's prison. Uh, and so... Um, there was this struggle. There was just this fear 
about and 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 this the idea that money was going to be the security that was going to take away the fear. And so we see that in the character of Scrooge, right? So he's someone who and in, in some there's gosh, if any of you have seen, there's the FX version that you and I watched a few years yeah, ago really that powerful. really goes a lot into his past. And so that he's abused by his father psychologically and physically, emotionally. He's abused by a teacher at a school where he lives. So um, his life has just been terrible, uh, and he's filled with fear, fear. And, you know, I always think of um, St. Robert Southworth, who was, uh, you know, an, an English martyr who said that fear is love's frost. I just think that's a great, a great way. Fear is love's frost. So that when, when we fear, it becomes an obstacle to love. And so I think in Scrooge, you know, we see someone where that is just taken to such a degree that he's so fearful, he's so insecure. You, I, I think in, in, uh, Bell even says it to him, you're, you're too afraid of everything. You know, you're afraid of life. You yeah. know, he's, he's afraid of poverty. And, and so instead of turning, you know, and, and when, we, when that happens to us, we have a choice of what we do with it, right? When, our, when, when, we, when we experience suffering, whether it's in our past, our childhood, uh, when we experience fear, we can choose what to do with it. You know, we can allow it to, to become an obstacle for love. We can allow fear to, to rob us of the joy and the peace that Christ wants for us. We can allow it to make us shrivel up and, and just not love. Or faith helps us, I think, to take fear and, and, and just lift it up to the Lord and, and know that, that Christ can be with us in that experience and melt that frost so that we then really can, can be able to love, right? So, uh, so that's what we see, I think, what I, I think it's very powerfully clear in the life of Scrooge. And that's what the, the ghosts do for him. You know, they help him to, to not to be so fearful. And maybe part of that is that when he sees, when he sees the, meets the ghosts, he realizes there's a level of reality that he can't see that he's got to trust in, you know, and, and maybe that's true for all of us, right? If you don't, if you've, if you don't have a belief in God, I would be very fearful, right? I don't know. I, I just think that there, there's, there's a certain sense of joy and peace that come from realizing there's something more than me, something bigger than me, something that knows me and loves me and cares about me and, and, and is with me as I, as I travel through my life, regardless of, you know, regardless of the things that happened to me, right? That's what's so wonderful about faith. And that's why Christ, I think, calls us to be people of joy. Part of that is know that I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's, you know, if we really believed that and knew that that was true, how would our lives be different if we knew, you know, Christ, I know that you're with me. I believe that you're with me. Know that I'm with you always, he said to us. Our fears, our insecurities, our worries, all those things and our sins come about because we forget that. We forget that God is with us. We forget that we forget that that we're here to make a journey that it's not about only this life, right? That we're on a journey to another life. Um and we need to remember that sometimes, you know. Isn't that very interesting that you just said that that journey through life um because that re- makes me think of Jacob Marley that that's something that he at least in this version, realize at the very, very end of his life where he says to him on his deathbed, we were wrong. 
But of course, in the more famous scene, when he appears to him as the ghost in the beginning that lets him know that these three ghosts are going to be coming, like he says, you know, link by link about these chains. Why are you changed up, chained up? Well, I created it link by link in this life by all the, you know, for lack of better terminology, terrible deeds that I did that I didn't care. You just said we're made for more than this life. All Jacob Marley and Ebenezer Scrooge did is worry about the things of this world. And, and, and whether they were acting out of fear, out of greed or whatever, you know, and you just spoke beautifully about how the fear is really kind of what, what frosted uh, Scrooge's heart. I love that. Did you say fear is? Fear is love's frost. frost. Fear is love's frost. That's absolutely beautiful. So Jacob Marley and him, all they cared about was this life, the, the material things, you know, getting by, getting by, getting over on other people. You know, they, they were men of business. They justified it, but they were preserving men, people of preservation. But they weren't people of, they, they were preserving only for the things of this life and not planning at all and perhaps not even believing in the things of the next life. And he was surely uh, awoken. You know, we talk about a woke culture. He, that, that was a woke moment for him. He found out that, wow, there is an afterlife. And guess what? I'm not sharing in the eternal glory. I'm, I don't know if what he was doing was purgatory or hell or what, however we could call it, but he's in these chains and he can't even do good for people. They show all these ghosts that, that want to do good and they lost the ability to do good and they're in this constant torment. By the way, would you think that that's hell or purgatory if we were to label that something? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think it sounds like a little bit of both, but I would think it's sort of hell, right? Yeah, because I would think so too. They, yeah. They've lost the ability and that's, that's really an interesting scene in it where he has this apparition. Marley takes him to the window and says, look out. And there's a, there's a poor woman sitting on the street in the freezing cold holding her baby. And there's all these spirits and ghosts flying around her that she can't see. She doesn't know they're there, but they're in absolute torment because they see her need and they want to help her. But as you said, Paul, they've lost the ability to intervene in human affairs with their love. And so they're unable to, to express love. Uh, and that is part of what, what I get, what certainly I imagine is, is sort of like hell, right? Where, where God is love, where where God, where God is, is not present, love is not present. But you know what's interesting about the story, though, is Marley is apparently, you know, part of that group of spirits, right? But yet what he does to Scrooge is an act of kindness and love and charity. So, so he's told, exactly. he's told that, you know, Scrooge is told that, th that this hell uh, is to lose the ability to love and to have that love what does Thomas Aquinas say? Love is to will the good of the other as other, right? So it means to, to act in love. It's an act, uh, love is an act of the will. Not We think it's just a feeling. It's not just a feeling, uh, a movement of the heart, but an act of the will. So uh, to will the good of the other. But these ghosts, uh, have, these spirits have been, are unable to do that. They're unable to will, to do anything good, right, um, for, for people. But Marley does it. So even in the midst of Ooh. this horrible thing that they're talking about here, I guess God must still have given Marley the ability yeah. to go back to your friend and try to help him. It really is an act of love that Marley does. Yeah, right? yeah, which would make me think it's more purgatory-ish because maybe there's even redemption for Marley. I mean, we don't know this, right? I don't think so. But maybe I want to believe that when Scrooge changes his life and has the redemption at the end, I would love to hear 
you know, Marley's chains being, you know, um, cut off and him being released. I mean, this is purely speculative and I'm adding my own version to it, but because he did do that good deed and maybe, you know, I'm not saying that purgatory is, you know, hellish or, you know, whatever, but, you know, uh, a purgatory is a place where people will eventually be, you know, go into heaven. It's a place of purification, uh, a place of, uh, of, of, I guess, being purged of our imperfections or impurities so that we could enter into the, the, the pearly gates. Um, but that, that's very interesting that even though th- all those people, all those ghosts, they couldn't help, he was sent to do a good deed, you know? Uh, which makes me think of another character, very, very different than Marley, but somebody who's very good in his life, his, his nephew, Fred. Now, one of my, he's probably one of my favorite characters in this, maybe very top, top up there, because he's just, so, he's just so positive and loving. He doesn't care how, you know, grinsome and grueling and nasty and cold or crosses that I guess they spoke back in those days that his uncle is, you know, he's not going to stop being loving. He's not going to stop wishing him a Merry Christmas. And, you know, Scrooge, he's like, well, what do you have to be merry about? You're poor enough. And then Fred goes, what do you have to be grinsome about? You're rich enough. So if, if I shouldn't be merry just because I'm poor, well, you're rich. You should be very merry. And he's not. So it's, it's interesting, the contrast that, you know, Fred, the nephew, is poor and he's so joyful. And he's full of cheer. And Ebenezer Scrooge has all the material things that he can have. And he's absolutely miserable. He's absolutely miserable. But that, that wasn't my point. My point is that it doesn't matter how many times Scrooge can cross him. Fred still loves him. He's his family member. And, and he doesn't take it personally. And I think that that's an example of how we can be sometimes with people in our life where no matter how nice we could be, no matter how loving we could be, they might be mean to us, they might be cold to us, or they might be just simply indifferent. But it doesn't mean that we need to react negatively. It doesn't mean that we need to be discouraged. We can continue loving somebody regardless of their behavior, regardless of their words. And as I'm saying this right now, right, I'm thinking of, as a practical example, my own parents. My own parents have loved all of the really good things about me, all of my assets, but they've also continued to love me like ridiculously continue to love me in all my own crap in all of my defects i mean have all not, your holy messness yeah all of it like they, like they have seen the messiness of it and i am absolutely in awe in awe of of how much my parents continue to love me through it all and forgive you want to talk people that forgive you know that they're over and over and over again of just people that love it's got to be my mom and dad. And I'm not just, you know, bringing this up and saying this because they just threw me a really nice 40th birthday party, (laughs) which they did. Which was a good party, by the way. It was. Thank God you were there. But no, I mean that. The nephew Fred, and I have a whole homily about it, which maybe I'll get to another time, but it really moved me how he did not, for not even a second, let... Scrooge's dark, cold, and nasty mood affect his own life in any way, shape, or form. You know, I haven't thought about that much, but as you're talking about it, it really is a great point. And I think it goes back to what I mentioned a few minutes ago. I guess we see in Fred, and because he he understands what love means, it's not about feeling. It's not about loving someone because they're going to love you back, at least in Aquinas' understanding of love. 
It's about loving as an act of the will, even those who don't love you back, but continuing to love, to will the good of the other as other. That's why Christ can say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Christ certainly wasn't talking about love as a feeling, right? Because our enemies don't give us back anything that makes us feel good. But love isn't about that. That's why Christ could die even for people who didn't care, even for the people who crucified him, even for people in this very day at this very moment who don't care, even for me at there's, when the moments in my life when I don't care or I've forgotten about it or I'm, I'm thinking of my other stuff or I'm thinking about myself, um, to will the good of the other as other. That's how Christ loved us. And that's how, how, how we're called to love others. And maybe Christmas helps us to do that. You know, maybe it helps us to remember the importance of love, you know, not even people that we're not getting anything back from, you know, or people who can't, can't give us something back. Um, but we keep going at it. We keep trying and we keep loving. Thank you. That's a good, a good insight on Fred. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, because, yeah, Jesus even said, he, uh, he said, basically, what benefit, what does it mean if you were to love somebody back who loves you? Like, that's easy. He says, even, even the, I think he says, even the pagans do the same, right? Like what, love your enemy, pray for the one who persecutes you. You know, the non-believer loves those who love them. It's easy to love somebody who loves you back. But Christ is saying, no, don't only love those who love you, love those who can't stand you, love your enemies, you know? And I'm not saying that Scrooge was an enemy of Fred, although maybe he certainly acted like it. But he loved him no matter what, regardless. So uh, that yeah, that's where Christ he takes the the old law and redeems it and and makes it new. You know, he says, "You have heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth," but I say, you know, um, go walk. <laughs> what is it? What does he say? Love your enemies. Love your- Pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, there you and go. her name was Fan. And her name was Fan. Did I say Fan again? No, you didn't say Fan. Oh, again. you're the best, man. All right, see, now we're getting into it. Now we're comfortable. I do have a question, though, uh, and we sort of touched on this a little bit, but I've always been kind of intrigued that it almost seems that the second the ghost of Christmas passed, you know, we have this like cold, you know, Scrooge, this dark, cold, dry, rigid guy. And, you know, he doesn't want to go on this thing, but he kind of has to. But the second that the ghost of Christmas past brings him to his school, like we, he almost starts to warm up right away. You know, he kind of even in the, the we didn't even talk about this version yet, but the Disney version with Jim Carrey, uh, which is absolutely stunning and beautiful. Um, you know, there's like a tear in his eye. Can you speak to that at all? Do you have any thoughts on that? That why all, like, just like that, we, we almost see him, the beginning of his transformation right away. Well, because I think that the, that the ghost of Christmas past is bringing him back, helping him to remember and reconnect with emotions that he felt before he was frosted. So it was mm. still there. It was still under the surface. Uh, and but but the the ghost very quickly is able to to break that down a little bit. Um, and remember, it's a novella, not a novel, so they had to move it a little more quickly, okay. I guess, right? But Got it. Um, but and and in in a number of the versions, and I think it's in the no, in the novel novella as well. 
when the, when the, the, the ghost says to him, what is that on your cheek? What is that there? And he sort of covers it up. It's nothing, nothing. I'm, I'm okay. Yes. So he's, he's starting to have this interior conversion that's beginning, just the, the, the first cracks in that, in that frost, in that ice. Um, and, uh, but he's not even, he's, he's sort of like resisting it still. So it does happen. It does happen. And, you know, there are those moments in our lives, right? Where, where, where that we can go back to, you know, before we became jaded, before we became angry, before we became disappointed, perhaps God knows what those things are. And maybe in moments of prayer and, and, you know, or even, you know, in, in Ignatian prayer, when we use our imagination to go back into a piece of scripture, you know, there's things in our past that God can use because to God, right. He doesn't, he doesn't experience things chronologically, right? All time is present to him. So, yeah. uh, you know, um, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, there's, there are things in our past that, I mean, I can go back to things in my past, like from 60 years ago that still can bring emotion to me, right? I still can feel the emotion of those things. And, and sometimes you just sort of layered over them, but something happens. Sometimes you're not even aware that it's happening or, uh, or, or even that the emotions are still there. But immediately, you know, right away, because it's, it's his own experience. It's taking him back to something that's buried deep within him. Uh, and that happens immediately. And what I love about the Disney version, if you remember, is as soon as the ghost of Christmas past comes to him and wants to, to take him out the window flying, right, to go back to, to the past, uh, as, as, as he begins, and, and Scrooge says, but I'm mortal and I'll fall. Yeah. And the ghost says, bear but a touch of my hand there and you'll be upheld in more than this. And he touches Scrooge's heart. And as, Ooh. and Scrooge lifts up and they begin to, as they fly out the window, going back to the past, what's the song playing? Ave Maria. It's a beautiful sort of connection there. Yeah. Right. Uh, with, with a, a beautiful song of faith. Yeah. And that does remind me about one of my homilies. Cause I think there was two different ones that I preached about a Christmas carol. And the one with the, uh, the Jim Carrey version, it, it's really beautiful. And when the ghost of Christmas past comes, he's, he's bearing or, or effusing, I don't know what the correct word, I don't know grammar, but uh, like this, this light, this, this, this shining bright light. And the first thing that Scrooge says is, can you please, you know, basically put your cover cap, it up, put your cover it up. On. Right. And I think the point of my homily was, is that like, because Scrooge is a man living in darkness, the light is way too bright for him. He can't stand it because he's constantly in darkness. And here comes this angel of light, right? Well, I mean, well, that sounds like Lucifer. I'm not talking, Lucifer was the angel of light and he fell. But here comes one of uh, the, this ghost of Christmas past and his light. But in, in Christianity, sometimes, you know, for the hardened, hardened sinner, a little bit of light, it, it, it's, it's really uncomfortable. And I think that that's why we, kind of numb ourselves with things or we just get distracted with all this noise because sometimes it's to think about these like pure, good, holy things almost makes us a little uneasy in the beginning of the spiritual life. And, and the, the ghost of Christmas past is something so beautiful. He says, and please help me here because I'm not going to remember it word for word, but would you so soon with your earthly hands put out the light that I yes. bear? Would you so soon with your worldly hands put out the light I give? Put out the light that I give. Yes, yeah. And I think that that's kind of sometimes what we do with God. And I'll, I'll, say, I'll say this, uh, a, a practical example. When I was at St. Andrew's College Seminary, once in a blue moon, I think it was once a month, 
we would have all night adoration, like literally all night long until seven o'clock in the morning. And, you know, we all had to take an hour. So I guess I had maybe like three o'clock in the morning, one, one, uh, one morning. So there I was in the chapel with the blessed sacrament, Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity present in the monstrance on the altar. And it was just me and him. And all of a sudden, I became a very, very aware of my sins, my unworthiness. And I became very, very aware that like the God of the world was in front of me. And I felt so much, this was not of God, by the way, right? I felt so much shame, so much. It's okay to feel guilt, but to feel shame and, and you know, to not want to look at God, that's not of God. That would be of the enemy. And I, I felt like I couldn't even look at him. I felt like his light was almost so bright because it was making me see the, the areas of my life where I, you know, who am I to think that I can become a priest? But I'm in the chapel at three o'clock in the morning with Jesus Christ. I'm going to be able to talk to somebody or bring them to Jesus Christ. And I was totally discouraged in that moment, right? Darkness is often of the enemy. Satan is the father of lies. And then I kind of just had this moment where like, you know what? Like, no, that this is why he's here. He's here to redeem. I don't have to be perfect enough, right? I don't have to have the, I don't have to wait until my darkness is gone to let him. No, he needs to be the light that scatters my darkness. You know what I mean? So in terms of this episode with Scrooge and the angel of the past with, with the light, you know, eventually he, he allows it, you know, little by little Scrooge, he allows the light to be in his life and he's enlightened by the light, this guy that's living in darkness. So just, you know, to add that into the Christmas, because it, one of the readings for the Christmas is the, the light uh, came into the world and the light scattered the darkness. Well, you know, one of the things when you're talking about reminds me of, and I, I wish I could remember what saint it was, but it may have been Mother Seton, but someone, uh, one of them talked about um, if you were to take, like, I, I'm paraphrasing very much here, you take a glass that looks clean, hold it up to the light, and then you'll really see the imperfections and the smudges and whatever else is on the glass. Yeah. And so when we become close to Christ, he is the light. Sometimes we see more we can see more of our own faults our own sins uh in his light but christ doesn't let us do that to overwhelm us and say see you're not perfect enough uh to come to me but that is the beginning right that that idea of, of repentance i'm talking about john the baptist or you know with the ghosts here that that the light helps us to see uh our who we really are but then christ the light transforms us i want to tell you a story a, a story of mine that has to do with light this was one of the most a really powerful experience that I had once. Uh, I was vocation director for the Archdiocese and director of our Emmaus House, a house of discernment in the city of Newark. And you know, we lived uh, lived at St. Patrick's Pro Cathedral, beautiful chapel in our in our house. And you know, I lived there every every year for, with five or not five, with maybe ten to fifteen different guys who were discerning a call to priesthood. But in the little chapel, there was a painting on the back wall by a, an artist named Masaccio. It was the famous. Trinity, where, where God the Father is holding up God the Son on the cross and the Holy Spirit is there, sort of like in a barrel-type vault ceiling. And I, I was sitting there in the chapel by myself, and it was early in the morning, and the sun was coming up, and at a certain point, the sun came through one of the windows in the chapel and went right to that painting and right to Christ's belly button. And I just sat there reflecting on Christ's belly button. 
And I thought to myself, you know something? We have devotion to all parts of Christ's body, right? His crown of thorns and his, you know, his, uh, his sacred heart and his wounds and his side and all that. I thought to myself, isn't it amazing that God would need a belly button? What yeah. is a belly button? A belly button is a scar that's left over from a time when we were so dependent on our mothers that she breathed for us, that, that our oxygen, our nourishment came through her. The God who made oxygen, the God who made food, the God who made the world made himself so small that he was dependent on a human mother for those things. Whenever I walk into a church and I see a crucifix, first thing I look for is the belly button. And I really would love one day to write a novena to the sacred belly button because I think uh, it's such a beautiful image. And for me, that was something of light that, that came, you know, when, we think of, when I think of light, um, you know, that the light came into the world. And, 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 you know, there's really so many beautiful images of light in Christmas Carol. One of the ones we were talking about before that we don't see in a lot of the versions, but it is in the, the novella, where the ghost of Christmas present takes Scrooge and they fly out into the ocean and they come to a lighthouse. Uh, and and he show, the ghost shows Scrooge and then they go to a ship who's right there it's men who are outworking horrible, difficult jobs on Christmas, but they are peaceful and they're celebrating. Um, and, and the growth of Christmas present is trying to, sh- trying to show Scrooge that, look, even people who's, who've have difficult lives, even people who, oh, who do suffer, they still can enjoy and celebrate and love Christmas. And I think the image of that lighthouse is so beautiful in the story. Because, again, it goes back to that idea, right, that, that Christ is the light. And so Scrooge eventually, you know, comes to understand uh, the importance of, of light. What, is he, what are the exact words he says again? Bear but a touch of your hand there, and you shall be upheld in more than this. Bear, and he touches his heart. He, he touches, touches his heart. heart. Yes. Yeah. And I think that you made a beautiful point there because we might think, like, no, like, I, I can't change. I, I'm not ready for this journey. I I'm, I'm too mortal. I'm too human. I'm, I'm too sinful. And he's like, hey, it's okay. Like, it's, it's not up to you. I got this. Just let me in. Just bear a, a touch of my hand, right? I, so many people talk about when Jesus invited Thomas, doubting Thomas, to touch his wounds because he wasn't there uh, uh, when Jesus appeared to the uh, apostles. And Thomas said, unless I, you know, put my, see his nails in his hands, see the nail marks in his hands and put my uh, fingers in his wounds, I will not believe, right? And Jesus appears and says, here, put him here. But I love this, this beautiful image, and I'm not sure where I saw or came up with the idea of, of allowing Christ to put his finger in our wounds, right? And I think that that's at that moment with the ghost of Christmas past did, he touched him in his heart, which because his heart was hardened. His heart was, was dark. His heart was cold. And, he, and all of a sudden, it kind of illumined. And then what happens then? He was able to fly, not on his own, but, but with, with the light, with the angel, right? So by ourselves, yeah, we are mortal. We, we will fall. But with Christ, I mean, not physically fly, but in the spiritual life, the mystical life, like he could take us places. Well, sometimes that we really do put up obstacles though, right? Like, isn't that what Scrooge said? Like, I'm mortal. I can't do this. You want me to do it? I'm afraid I can't do it. Uh, and, and sometimes perhaps we do the same thing. So it's very easy for us to doubt, right? Um, and, or to put up the obstacles. 
uh, to belief and to trust, you know, but God, God still calls us. And, and God, you know, again, in the case of Thomas, as you just, you mentioned, you know, he, he proves, God proves, you know, put your hand in my side. You can, you can really see uh, and feel that I'm, I've really risen. Um, and God does that for us, I think, in, in lots of different ways. But I love the image of God, you know, of Christ then putting his hand in our wounds as well. Is there anything at all about a Christmas carol that we haven't talked about, that we haven't touched? Is anything that you, without me asking questions, that you think should be discussed, talked about, about the general story related to Christianity in any, any character that maybe we haven't even gotten to yet that you think is an absolute must? You know, one of the things I would say, there's just a little throwaway line that's, that happens very quickly in the movie where um, when Scrooge uh, is leaving th- this place of business, it's Christmas Eve, he's letting Bob Cratchit go home early, uh, you know, take the next day off, even though he doesn't want him to. And, and Cratchit says to him, Merry Christmas, as Scrooge is walking out the door. And Scrooge stops and says, you know, something like, how can it be merry for you? You're a clerk, you make 14 pence an hour or whatever. Uh, you know, you make so little, you know, you're, and how can it be really merry for you? And then Scrooge has a line he says something like, uh, I'll retire to Bedlam, which was an old English phrase. Um, and, and, and it's got an interesting history. You know, in, in, if you go to the city of London today, there's a place called the Imperial War Museum that you can visit. It's on the other side of the Thames from, you know, from uh, Westminster and all that stuff. But it was, uh, used to be called, well, uh, many centuries ago, it was a, a Catholic monastery, a priory. But with the dissolution of the monasteries, Eventually, over time, it became a hospital, and it was called St. Mary of Bethlehem Hospital for the Criminally Insane. And in the days before, you know, uh, uh, psychological understandings and medications and things, that's where people went who were criminally insane. And the people who lived in that part of London, that area, they were terrified of the hospital because all they knew was that all they could hear from the outside were the shrieks and the groans and the screams of the tortured minds of the people who lived inside. And so as they talked more and more about the hospital, they started, they, instead of calling it Bethlehem Hospital, they, they sort of changed the word to the word Bedlam. And so that became Bedlam. And so a new word was born in the English language, a word that means chaos and confusion, right? Uh, and so in, in A Christmas Carol, Scrooge says, I'll retire to Bedlam. What, what, he's, what, he, what that phrase meant then was sort of like, all of you people are crazy around me. Uh, and if I keep listening to you, I'll wind up with you there in Bedlam. I always think that's a great image of Christmas today. Isn't it a shame that this beautiful time of year, Advent and Christmas, that should be a time for us of, of, of recognition of the hope that Christ brings, you know, that beautiful Advent peace, so many of the images and and scriptures and, and things about Advent and Christmas uh, that can bring us just this beautiful sense of peace become absolutely swallowed up by all of the hoopla of Christmas, right? We have to get things done. We have to sh- shop. We have to wrap. We have to put up Christmas trees. We have to do all of these crazy things. This time of year is bedlam for so many of us. Isn't it a shame that Bethlehem becomes bedlam? And we allow that to happen. Maybe that's something that we can think about now, you know, as we're talking tonight, there's still two weeks left. And this year is, as, is the longest that Advent can possibly be. It's four full weeks 
Isn't that wonderful? Next year, it'll be the shortest Advent can possibly be because the fourth week of Advent will just be like a couple of hours long. It'll Ooh. only be like three weeks. But um, we still have time. And even in, 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 when Christmas comes, in, in the octave and in the season of Christmas, to really understand what Bethlehem means and not, at least maybe just for a few minutes here and there, not to let it become bedlam for us. So I think that's something that I'd like, uh, that I want to remember as I watch, because I don't really always, I don't really remember hearing that line so much, but this year I, I'm hearing that line and it's, it's saying something to me, you know, Bethlehem, not bedlam. I know how we can end this, Father Paul. How? What's the words that Tiny Tim says at the end of the, at the end of the novel? The last words in the movie, the last words in the book. God bless God us. God bless us. Everyone. everyone. Merry Christmas, Paul. Thank Merry you so Christmas, much. Father God's John. God's blessings on your podcast. Father John, thanks for being Merry here. Christmas. I love you. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Yeah.